This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. And here uh, today, we're on New Books in East European Studies with my guest, Vladislav Davidson, And Vlad's new book is just out. It is called From Odessa with Love, Political and Literary Essays from Post-Soviet Ukraine, published by Academica Press in Washington and London with a foreword by Peter Pomerantsev and a preface by Simon Montefiore. Thank you, Vlad, for joining us, for taking time uh, with me today. Uh, It's really great to be here. I've been a great fan of your work and of this particular podcast for a very long time. Uh, great honor to be here with a gentleman such as yourself who really knows the area of studies well. Well, that's that, that's so generous of you to say that. I, I, I love the fact that you've written a book on Odessa, which is one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, and so I, I wanted to introduce you for people who, who don't know who you are for our general listening audience. This is Vladislav Davidson. He is a Russian-American writer, translator, and critic. He's well known as the founder and chief editor of the Odessa Review. He writes for Foreign Policy and Tablet and is currently a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, and Vlad was born in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and, and lives in Paris. Although, leading into my very first question, I get the feeling that Vlad is is very much still the a peripatetic cosmopolitan living between cities. And I want to ask Vlad why you wrote a book, at least in part with your reportage about Odessa. Yes, indeed, I cannot stop myself from moving around. This has something to do, I imagine, with my uh, dislocated childhood moving from Uzbekistan at four to Moscow to America to Europe to moving around a lot when I was a kid. Uh, Clearly, I've in some ways recreated my early experiences of moving around continuously and learning new things and looking at the world. Uh, Excellent preparation for an international journalist, I would say, uh, which it was. So I have had a love affair with Odessa since 2010. I have been going there every year. I used to spend the summers there from 2010 to 2015 on. I lived there for a couple of years during uh, right after the Maidan, when the war started, when Russia invaded Ukraine. I am a big fan of the city. It's wonderful. It is everything that I like. I also spent a lot of time in my childhood in Little Odessa, in Brighton Beach, amongst other places in New York Mm. City. So, you know, when you're a Russian-Ukrainian Jewish guy from Uzbekistan whose grandparents are evacuated out ahead of the Nazis to uh, Central Asia from the uh, area, I mean, without going into my grandparents' background, 
and you grow up in little Odessa and you have a connection to the Russian world and the Ukrainian world as I do, little Odessa takes you all the way up to big Odessa. And Mm -hmm. as Peter Pomerantsev writes uh, very generously in his uh, forward to my book, uh, my reverse flow uh, was what showed him the genius of the age, which is a completely silly thing to do, to immigrate from America to Odessa is the opposite of what most people do. So he thought it was very funny and amusing and generative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to ask maybe about some of the similarities that you draw in your writings in the 2010s between, as you say, little Odessa and big Odessa. So it's a world of Isaac Babel, but it's also a a world of of entry and, and the port in many ways, I think, represents that both in New York and Odessa. So maybe tell our listeners what the world of Odessa represents to you, both both in literature with all of its gangster history, let's say, and, and interesting cultural figures, and, and then to the present in the 20 teens when you went back. Well, a lot of the main guys or the protagonists of the world that we live in, in terms of organized crime or the intersection of literature and organized crime and the intersection of American politics and organized crime, they get their start in Odessa. So, I mean, I could give, I can give you a lot of names. So you, you have uh, the legend of Odessa as written by Isaac Babel, which we're all familiar with, but then you have a lot of contemporary characters, hitmen and killers, um, you know, uh, Characters like uh, Mr. Satter, who was uh, close to uh, Felix Satter, who was close to uh, Donald Trump. He comes from he comes from Odessa. His family comes from Odessa. Uh, I can I can give you multiple other characters who pop up and go between go back and forth between Odessa and New York, who are, are an organized crime. But mm-hmm. You know, there's a continuity. So when when I got to America in the 1990s, we were living in Brighton Beach. That's the first place we wound up. And all these characters who were let out of gulags and let out of Odessa because the the Soviet Union needed to get rid of them and wanted to make problems for the Americans, they all went to New York and they all got their springboard or their start in the new world in a place that is not dissimilar from the old world. So there's a real continuity, and it's it's something that I saw a lot of in my childhood growing up in Brooklyn, uh, pre-gentrification Brooklyn in the 1990s. So I was well prepared for this world way before I put So I, I'm particularly interested, Vlad, um, in the book. I have several favorite essays, and, and I'm really partial to the one that you wrote about your life and intellectual journey through your formative years at City University in New York. You have a beautiful piece on Marshall Berman. Um, what, what was it, let's say, that led you through the universe of New York intellectuals back to the old world, which I might argue is really a new world of, of Ukrainian 20-teens politics and, and, and patriotism? That's a great question. Thank you. So there are a lot of obituaries in this book. I really like writing about people's lives, and the obituary is a form that uh, that is not always easy to get right, but I like writing obituaries. 
and I wrote an obituary, an essay, appreciation for my teacher, Marshall Berman, political philosopher. He was a Marxist, and I studied with him in CUNY. He was active uh, before he died about a decade ago in 2012, 2013 in CUNY. I studied with him at, at the CUNY Graduate Center in Hunter College, and he was like the last generation of um, New York intellectuals. I mean, probably if you're into intellectual history, he was of the third generation of New York intellectuals. Of course, Kazin, uh, Alfred Kazin being of, of a second and Susan Sontag and those people being of a second. But when I was in college about 15 years ago, when I was at university, those people were still active. So I studied with the last generation of the real New York intellectuals like Morris, uh, uh, Morris mm-hmm. Dickstein, who was a teacher, Marshall Berman, those people were still around. They were still teaching at, at CUNY. Alfred Kazin was already not active. I think he already had died by the time I'd gone to the university. But I'd really grow, grown up in between cultures. And I was really trying to piece together as a young man what it means to be an American, what it means to be a, a post-Soviet Jew, what it means to be a Russian or Ukrainian America. And I was reading a lot of these books from the 1920s and 30s and 40s, like Irving Howe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, World of Our Fathers, Alfred Kazin's Walk, Walker in the City, Norman Mailer, that sort of stuff. I was really interested in that entire intellectual trajectory because I was at City University at CUNY way after its heyday, although mm-hmm. Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center were f- fine. I got an excellent education. And anyone who goes there and, and reads books and finds people who want to talk to them will get it excellent education but it's you know it's not harvard doesn't cost you a quarter of a million dollars a year yeah yeah i i think about that um a lot i mean that's one of the many vanished worlds i think and the brooklyn gentrification environment that that you speak of um let's talk about the content of the book so in, in terms of contents for um for um, odessa with love these are dispatches or, or maybe reportage is a better word um, you have five sections, I think. So, uh, sorry, more than that, actually, nine sections. Um, and, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you and, and, and your editor, I know this is Paul Dukenoy and, and, and others um, with the press, decided to arrange this. Um, the first section is on Odessa, but what else did you include in the book? So, you know, I've I've written or edited hundreds of pieces over the last 10 years as a journalist, writer, literary critic. I had material that I had always wanted to write about that I'd never got around to telling those stories. And I thought it was time, like my story about Thomas Sillison, my, my friend who is a Danish businessman who foolishly, foolheartedly, uh, foolheadedly, let's say that's a word, <laughs> bought a building in Odessa and went to war with the Odessa mob and basically, you know, won because he's just a, such a fun character. And he he sat them down and, and plied them with alcohol and meat and bread. And, and as a Viking of old, he won his conflict with the Odessa mob. So there were, there were lots of stories like that that I knew were great and I never got around to writing and I always wanted to put in a book. But there were just a lot of stories which are important for understanding the trajectory of Ukrainian culture as a building thing in between 2015 and 2020. And Odessa, which is a city state unto itself, 
and is not really generally part of lots of other processes, stands apart, but although really is important for understanding lots of things. And so I really wanted to write about, about Ukrainian culture as it's being built after the Maidan. It's a tremendous new national culture. After the Maidan, you have the birth of a new civic national identity, a civic political culture. And I, I knew that there was a lot to be done on the interplay between that and Odessa. There's a lot of the best people in Ukrainian culture, from my young friend, uh, let's say, Nikolai Krabinovich, the young conceptual artist, mm-hmm. to my uh, wife's business partner in their film production company, uh, Alexei Gludashevsky, who's a big guy in Ukrainian television in Kiev. These are people who are born and come out of Odessa, and they maybe move to uh, Kiev, in Gludashevsky's case, to make film, or they move to Europe, Brussels and Belgium, in uh, Krabinovich's case, to make art. But lots of people, including my wife, come from Odessa and go to Kiev or go to New York or go to Russia or go somewhere else in order to make stuff. So mm-hmm. Odessa is an important place historically. It is still an important place. It's not as generative as it was in the 19th century, of course. It's not the New York City of the Russian Empire as it was in 1880 and 1890 when it really was the center of the universe for uh, lots of stuff in Eastern Europe. But it's still an important place that launches a lot of important careers and shapes important personalities. So I thought Mm -hmm. it was very useful to get that process down onto paper and to connect it to the creation of a national cultural identity, a civic national identity, which is being shaped even as we speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly interested, Vlad, in how you explain and describe Odessa historically. And, and I have a lot of questions I can just ask about the city, but I'm fascinated um, as a student of Patricia Hurley, my beloved advisor, um, one, one of the first sort of Western historians to come in by your, your take on the medieval city-state and say, political clans who turn into sort of mafia groups within the city. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes of Odessa as an Italian city-state, like the, the Sforzas and the de' Medici's and so forth. Yeah. And, and I, want, I, I wonder, you know, this I think is a brilliant analogy. I wonder how that grafts onto the often like basic apolitical nature, maybe even aesthetic nature of, of Odessites and and how you see that especially unfurling in the context of the Maidan and, and after. So there seems to be a, a great, you know, to put words in your mouth, durability of, of those political clan, if not mafia networks. And I wonder if you might say a few words about that. So, yeah, there's a lot to say there. Uh, let's unpack all that. First of all, Patricia was just absolutely fantastic. You were a very lucky man to have gotten the chance to study with her. I led the le- very last talk that she ever gave in public at at Harvard where her, I think it was two, two three years ago, 2018, I came to Harvard to do a talk on of the Ukrainian cultural industry. And I led a talk with her about her last book. She was absolutely mm-hmm. chic and fantastic and fun. <laughs> she created Odessa historiography almost single-handedly. And she did it in an interesting way, exactly as you, as you put out Paint, uh, point out, she went to archives in Italy when the Soviet Union was still closed, and she found a lot of stuff in European archives from Italian diplomats and French diplomats. 
she very cleverly figured out the early history of Odessa working in Italian archives. And a lot of it was grain manifests from yeah. Italian captains who were coming back to, let's say, uh, let's say Northern Italy from Odessa with stuff. And a lot of it was uh, from Italian architects who had gone over there to build stuff. Odessa has the highest concentration of Venetian Gothic revival architecture anywhere in Europe. <laughs> yes. It looks like Italy or a 19th century, early 19th century Italian architects fantasia of what Italy looked like 200 years ago for a reason. And there is something to the fact that it still has a, let's say, not leadership structure, but a, uh, a ownership structure of the political space by various actors that much resembles, as as I think I've said in the book, and as you point out, Italian city-state family architecture in Florence or in Padua in the 15th or 16th century. And Odessa's special because it has a large middle class. It's different from lots of other cities in Ukraine for that reason. Unlike Lviv, it's not run by one person. That's often the case in uh, large Ukrainian cities is that one local oligarch or one local macher or one local political mm-hmm. baron runs a pyramid that decides everything. In Odessa, it's very much a consensual system with a lot of different players, as we've already said. It's not really run by a cadre of uh, mercantile elites, let's say, I mean, uh, without going into other cities, comparing it, let's say, to Mariupol or Sevastopol uh, in terms of ports. It's run as a uh, fiefdom with mob structures controlling lots of things. And also the fact that the, as I've said in the in some of the pieces in this book, Ukrainian intelligence services don't always control all the processes that go on there. It very much is uh, reaching back to its 19th century heydays as, as a city of Porto Franco, which, you know, doesn't mm-hmm. pay taxes, by being a kind of modern-day Singapore or Hong Kong-like city-state. So Saakashvili, who was there, Governor Saakashvili, uh, former Georgian president Saakashvili understood this very well when he was in Odessa. He really got the mythology correctly. He figured out that people look back to the 19th century when the city was very wealthy and successful and when there were no taxes to be paid when it was a Porto Franco city until the 1850s and 60s. And it has this kind of hybrid culture of yeah. mercantile mafia capture with local intelligence structures and security structures having a piece of the pie and and keeping Kiev out in exchange for you know some percentage of the goods so it's a very complex city in terms of way it's actually run mm-hmm. the, the the mayor of the city is continuously let's not, let's not say anything libelous but it's continuously <laughs> <laughs> Let's. <laughs> Let's not say yes. anything libelous. Let's just say uh, 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 BBC, the BBC has had investigations of uh, the current mayor. Yes. Uh, I, I write about I write about the, uh, the the mafia structure in the city. I think in a very amusing manner, if I do say so myself. You know, it it it, it is a city that's run by by 
people with let's again not be libelous but connections to intelligence structures and mafia structures mm-hmm. yeah and and, and I, I won't put you too much on the spot but i i will i, I will and i won't I want you to talk about Saakashvili and, and some of these political elites, and, and it's really up to you who you want to introduce, but you have you have some interesting turns of phrase when you're um, talking about Russiagate, especially less so Ukraine-gate. I think that's going to be your, your next work. You have this story, as you mentioned, the Viking who defeated the Odessa Mafia and erected a runestone. Um, I wonder if you just might share some of these stories in, in order to offer our listeners um, and readers a window into political culture. Who, who are these elites? I mean, how are they, how are they behaving on, on top of the skepticism and, and the satirism and the, the comedy of, of local Odysseids? Let's tell some stories, yeah. Without, uh, without naming the, the guy who I'm talking about, although everyone who's connected to Odessa will know exactly which real estate developer. I mean, a certain gentleman I visited in his office. Uh, he actually sat in the same office that the legendary Greek mayor of, of Odessa from the 1840s and 50s, Marasvili, used. He is sitting in his office and he invites me in and we have an interview and we have a conversation. And he asked me basically how to bribe his daughter's way into Stanford. Uh, <laughs> That kind of I thing. I know who this is. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Let's again. Let's not be libelous, you know. Yeah. Uh, and he later ran away to the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and he's still sitting there. And he run. He controls a lot, a lot, a lot of real estate in the city center. And he he's straight up a guy who you can come to agreement with, as we say in in, in Odessa. You can come to an understanding with this gentleman. Another story, Saakashvili arrives and Saakashvili starts making deals with everybody and he gets the nod in 2016 to be the governor of Odessa region. He thought he could spend 18 months remaking it in the form of Georgia as he remade Georgia in a wildly successful and wildly controversial fashion when he was the president there. He really thought that he could do the same very quickly in Odessa. He wildly overestimated his capacity to do so. He wildly underestimated uh, the support that he would be getting from Kiev. He wildly underestimated the resentment and resistance he would be engendering from local political elites, a few of whom he could fight at once, but not all of them all at once. He thought that he could steamroll his way through a political class and bring in his own guys from Georgia and take power in the region and get rid of everybody he didn't like, put some people in jail, form a Russian-speaking center-right political party, and take power in Ukraine. That's what he wanted to do. Yeah, He was widely mistaken in his capacity to do so. And there were, there were a lot of interesting things that went on. But, you know, just a few, a few stories. I get a call at one in the morning from one of his aides, he says, Vlad, Vlad, you're an American citizen. I said, yes. Can you help us? I said, yes. What, what, what would you like? It's one in the morning. Why are you calling me? I, I never, you know, it's, it's very curious. I'm just sitting, writing, having tea. One in the morning, get a phone call. Very curious what they want from me. Oh, a, 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 a Ukrainian is having his factory being taken 
over in the middle of Odessa. It's a foreign investor. He's having his factory taken over by quote unquote Tsitorsky. They've invaded the factory. They're they're on the grounds of the factory. They're demanding that the factory ownership be transferred from a Ukrainian. So why are you calling me? Oh, it's a Ukrainian American. Okay, good, good. All right. Why are you calling me? Can you call the American embassy? We don't want to be the ones to call them. It'd be nice if you if you called uh, because uh, they obviously had some sort of relationship with this Ukrainian American foreign investor. <laughs> so yeah. I called the American embassy at one thirty in the morning. and said, "Oh, Saakashvili's people want you to send someone over to keep an AMSIT, quote unquote, American citizen from getting his." property stolen in Odessa. I don't know why they didn't call you yourselves. So that, that kind of thing happened once a week while he was there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is a larger question because you're, you know, you're dealing with culture and politics and policy and intelligence circles all at once. Um, as a journalist, I, I'm intrigued by Saakashvili. I, I wonder, because you describe him as, as quixotic, um, how you yeah, cast... And yeah, erratic, and, and, erratic. And, and and inconsistent because yep. you know he he imagines himself in 2015 as coming in and and suddenly being able to do this in a couple of years and I would argue that his project would probably take several generations and and I wonder if you share that same impression both about him and some of the other so-called anti-corruption reformers and I would even put Zelensky in this category but. I mean, how how long does it take, I guess, in a city like Odessa to um, start these giant quixotic projects of reform? In Look, Saakashvili, it was all fun and games, and it was a lot of fun, and the parties were great, and all the international journalists arriving, and it was the center of political life for a little bit, and it was just fantastic fun. I'm not going to lie. I had the time of my year, and not the time of my life, but a great fun year. In 2016, when all this was going on, it was tremendous fun. He, he, he's a ball of energy in a tornado, and he was creating tremendous energy and everything. But he wasted someone else's opportunity with his tomfoolery and his erratic behavior and his lack of follow-through and his lack of structured capacity to get anything done. He really wasted mm-hmm. a once-in-a-generation opportunity. We're not going to get another opportunity to re- redo things in Odessa for another 10 years at the very least. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 a bit unpleasant that he wasted someone's opportunity to actually do something serious. But mm-hmm. yeah, it would take it would take certainly years to get that done. It would take five years of his energy if he was actually committed to getting it done in the way that he said he was. It would it would take at least five years. It wouldn't take a year. It would it would or eighteen months as he said. It would take five years. You know. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. Ukrainians love to say that they've done more after the Maidan than they did in the previous 25 years. It's absolutely true. They didn't really work on restructuring the country or building a new national identity or reforming things for the first 24 years. They basically swapped out the symbols of state of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic for the blue and yellow flag and the tri the trident and all that but they didn't really create new building blocks of identity they didn't really create new reform processes they didn't really create an alternative vision you know anyone mm-hmm. who ran around with the ukrainian flag 
and that's a good thing from my perspective, before 2014, was basically an ethnic nationalist to one level or another. That's no longer the case. Now, the symbols of state are symbols for everybody who wants to partake in them and anyone who's born in, U- in Ukraine or anybody who holds a Ukrainian passport. And it took 24 years for Ukrainians to begin that project. And they're just at the very, very, very start of it. It's going to take, you know, development theory tells us between 30 and 70 years. It's really going to take literally Mm -hmm. two generations, you know, and we're only Mm -hmm. seven years into that project. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, yours is an opening salvo um, in writing about this reform agenda. I, I'm interested, um, Vlad, if you could, speak about some of the other figures. So um, Paul Manafort is a big figure in, um, if we can talk a little bit about him and what he does. And and I guess if we're not dealing with him directly, perhaps we could talk a little about the Ukrainization of American politics and the Americanization of Ukrainian politics. And especially as, you know, a lot of these swamp masters, for lack of a better word, end up in Ukraine and, and begin kind of transforming the culture of political parties and, and, and lobbying environments. So yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking into Paul Manafort. I find him fascinating for completely different reasons that lots of people in the West find him fascinating. And I don't really think the story of, of what he was or what he did has really truly been told. Although Frank Foer, who's a great guy and a nice guy and someone I talk to and someone I see sometimes, did a lot of good work. And if you want to understand Paul Manafort, I I think you should read my book and you should read Frank Foer's pieces. But I don't think really the entire story of what he represented has been told. I think he represents on different registers, one, the uh, at the highest level, the political consultants and pollsters who came to the post-Soviet world and taught the Russians and the Ukrainians how to do polling and how to run consultancies and how to do political parties and how to run a modern political campaign, which was a normal process. Someone was going to do it and they were in the right place in the right time with the right skill set. But they also brought a lot of sleaze from the West to Ukraine. And they yes. brought a lot of new, equally filthy skill sets back to America. So I, I've always said to people, I don't think Paul Manafort knew how to export money from an offshore into Kazakhstan and through the Seychelles into America before he was in Ukraine. And he was being paid by local oligarchs who were having to pay a tithe informally to Kiev. You know, he would give his uh, invoices to Bankova and they would ask local oligarchs to chip in as a form of informal taxation, really. So that's very interesting, the way the way he brought, again, not to be libelous, a certain Odessa power broker, oligarch politician was paying him mm-hmm. through, through, uh, through uh, uh, certain structures, investment vehicles 
and um, black structures in Kiev. The the black ledger stuff is very interesting, but I you know I'm I, I'm not really interested in that on for its own sake. I'm interested in what he represents in terms of uh, the bringing of American political warfare to Ukraine and back. So I've, I've said mm. this to multiple people in, in Washington yeah. DC for generations, Kiev was seen as a, as an ATM machine where you can get a lot of money for almost nothing. So there are a lot of political people, you know, even people like Bob Dole who were making easy, yeah. easy lobbying money. Back, back to Ford, back to Ford. I might say even, you know, it goes back before Reagan. Um, one could, one could argue. Oh, no, no, I mean, I mean, uh, from like '98 or '99 onwards, it becomes. Oh, a, okay, okay. Bob Dole, like ten years ago, was making was making lobbying money. That, 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 those kinds of figures. I mean, I'm just not going to single him out, but lots of yeah. lots of very serious people in DC were making money. People connected to the Clinton campaign. People connected to the McCain campaign. People connected to uh, the Clintons. You know, a lot of people were making money in in Ukraine. And it was easy money, and they were making it hand over fist. So I, I write about the way that American partisan politics comes to Ukraine, and Ukrainians are at the forefront of a international movement for different political uh, forces in the rest of the world to take sides within American politics, which is very bad either with Republicans or Democrats, thus making enemies of the other side. So mm-hmm. Ukraine gave, the, the subtext of a lot of it was that some factions in Ukraine were backing the Clinton campaign and others were, uh, were backing, backing Trump, you know? And it's because of the end of a Cold War and because of the end of a consensus of what American foreign policy is or should be or what it's for, that you have no more rules in Washington, D.C. or norms or even, let's right. say, good manners about what you can or cannot do as a lobbyist or as a political operative or as the son of a vice president. Hint, hint. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There no, yeah. Uh, without going into that gentleman's uh, 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 malfeasance in Ukraine, there are no more rules or norms uh, emanating from Washington, D.C. about what American elites can do. So from... From Manafort to McCain's aides to the Clintons who clean up going to uh, a certain Ukrainian oligarch's uh, uh, powwows and uh, flying around on private planes. Lots of people in American politics are making money, are consulting, are doing all sorts of things. And the Ukrainians uh, or some Ukrainians get in the habit of intervening in American politics on the side of one or another political party. Now, this is not unique to Ukraine, but this is a new development that that takes place over, let's say, the last five to eight years. And it leads directly to Russiagate and Ukrainegate in lots of complicated ways that I try to tease out in this book. Mm-hmm. I And I, I guess I wonder, you know, in comparing um, the option for Odessa, um, at least relative to say Kharkiv or maybe Kiev. I don't know if Kiev is the best comparison, but you know, Kharkov, Kharkiv, if you, if you look at what these Americans who came in did, do you see the level of, of transformation 
this political transformation that you mentioned persisting after the election of, of Zelensky in, in 2019, I guess, you know, what has really changed? <laughs> and, and then with Trump gone after 2020, do you, can you give us a sort of prophecy here? Um, do you see the, the swamp stinking even more of sewage or is there some possibility for the anti-reform wing to win out locally? Um, are we talking about Washington, Kiev, or or in the regions of Ukraine? I, I guess if you compare Odessa to some other cities in Ukraine, because you know you, you have an axis here, right? One of the axes is is Odessa to Kiev. Are, are yeah. there other 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 cities within you know the the world of regions, not the party of regions, which is defunct, but within other U- Ukrainian cities, yeah. where you, where you see the possibility of this kind of anti-corruption campaign working? Look, I. I really think that these things have to come top down from Kiev and Kiev first has to take control of the city in a much more serious way than it has control of it now. I've really come to that conclusion. There is a lot of civic activism in in Odessa. There is a lot of interesting stuff going on, especially post-2017. There are are Ukrainian nationalist organizations. There are young guys with, with... running around with guns and uh, uh, khakis and all this, who are ready to defend the city if it gets invaded. There are more civic activist groups and all this. But really, it's it's a drop in the ocean, I think, in terms of political power. I've really looked into a lot of it, and I've spent I've been, spent a lot of time with activists. There, there's just not the same level of activism in terms of governance outside of particular issues like historical preservation, which is which is fairly strong in Odessa because lots of people love the city center. Um, on particular issues, you will have activism that sees rewards, but on mm-hmm. the port and actually what goes on in the port in terms of tariffs and in terms of who actually gets the money from uh, the port, I don't, I don't see that happening until you get another strong character like Saakashvili taking over again in a couple of years and and cleaning it up mm-hmm. in Kiev again that's it, it's the capital so it's not it's not fair to make a comparison but you can't compare it to a city like Lviv or a city like Kharkiv or Dnipro these cities all have completely different dynamics internally politically they have different kinds of political pyramids that run them the development in Odessa is like no other city in Ukraine for all sorts of reasons is completely unique. And mm-hmm. it has to do with the fact that it really is the last port standing. I mean, Mariupol is just not as big or as important as a port. It really yeah, has to a good do one. with, yeah, yeah. It's, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of trade coming in from Turkey and um, Asia through, through uh, Odessa. So just the, the fact that the shipping is the main thing in Odessa makes the political development of a city very different from a city like Dnipro, which produces things, or a city like Kharkiv, which does a lot of business, especially with Russia, or used to. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I'm loath to make comparisons between big cities because every city in Ukraine is different in the way it's run and the political economic structure, the political economy of Lviv is probably very different from Chernowitz, where my some of my ancestors are from. You know, 
and, and Odessa is unique in, in many ways. And already I've explained partly why that's so. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't see anything changing on a macro level until the rest of the country changes in Odessa, partly because it's so isolated from lots of other things and buffeted by uh, protectionist mm-hmm. rackets run often by people in the security services. Again, without saying anything libelous. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wanted, um, I, I don't want to ask every question about policy, but I, I wanted to return to some of your essays on, on cultural life. And I Thank think you. some of these are, are really remarkable. You have an interview with Hobart Earl, who's, you know, life and work. This is the, the um, director of the Odessa Philharmonic. And oh, he's fantastic. He's just an amazing person. And Yuri Andrukovich, of course, who's one of my first, you know, loves of Ukrainian literature. You have an interview with him. Um, could you talk a little bit about this life on the ground? I mean, I'm thinking the things that are there that maybe our listeners who haven't been to the city are, are not aware of, like the Green Theater or, you know, the Philharmonic. What what are those things representing to you, despite all of this um, mess, you know, through Russia Gate and, and Trump and now Ukraine Gate and beyond? But what are those structures for you? Yeah, I really don't want to sound like this book is unhappy. It's a, it's a happy book in many ways. It's a very hopeful book. It's a very loving book. It's a love letter to the city that I love and to this country that I love, obviously, from Odessa with love. Um, and in fact, you know, not uncoincidentally, James Bond is from Odessa, the the, the Jewish guy who uh, uh, his life is patterned on, the, the film was, and the, the novels are patterned on, is, is a Jewish guy from Odessa, a, a spy from Odessa. And it's a city of spies and, and, and thieves and all this. But it's also a city of culture historically and still. And that has something to do with the cosmopolitan uh, demographics of it and the fact that people are continuously coming in from other parts of the world to do things there. Partly it has something to do with just the, just the city, just the architecture, just the, the maybe just the air, uh, the, 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 the sea around it. It's just a lovely, important place, and it produces interesting people for that reason. Culturally, it still punches way, way, way above its, its cultural weight, although a lot of the first-rate figures have moved away. Sadly, mm-hmm. a great friend of mine just passed on a very important figure, Alexander Roitbert, the painter who was the director yes. of the Odessa Art Museum, just passed on about a month ago. Uh, he, he died of COVID, I think, right? Was it? Yeah, you know, he 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 had a, he had a lot of problems. I knew him very very well for a long time, and he had a lot of problems stemming from his very vigorous consumption of alcohol and extracurricular. Uh, 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 narcotics in his youth. He he had a very 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 fun twenties and thirties, and his health was shot. Mm-hmm. He had um, he had uh, liver problems, and he had um, other issues. So he 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 was knocked out of the world by COVID. But he he had yeah. other uh, morbid comorbidities and health problems. But the main painter in the city was also the director of the art museum, and he just died. And he was one of the great public intellectuals of the city. Um, I'm I'm hoping to write a, a profile of him or a big essay on him when the time comes, maybe in a month or two, maybe in tablet, in time for my second book, actually, which is mm-hmm. going to come out next year about the Ukrainian-Jewish relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. 
so there are a lot of there are a lot of figures that come out of Odessa, but a lot of them move away, if only to Kiev. So there are only like four or five real giants in terms of the culture who are still living there, including Boris Hersonsky, the poet, who is a real mm-hmm. giant, and uh, a few others we won't go into. But th- there uh, there are people like my friend Herbert Earl, who is an American, Venezuelan-born, who has spent thirty years stewarding, shepherding. The Odessa Philharmonic, who is this remarkable figure who I write about a couple of times in this book. And I have a long 8,000 word uh, conversation with him in the book. I think it's worth the price of admission alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, and what do you see Odessa producing? I, I mean, other than artists and, and, and comedians, <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, this is one of the things Odessa is known for. But um, I, I mean, I love this focus that you have on gangsters and thieves. I'm, I'm thinking about the future of artistic life. And, and of course, you know, in, in any Ukrainian environment, this means patronage and oligarchs and things like that. Um, could you say yeah. a few, a few words about that? What is Odessa, what is Odessa putting out? Odessa still produces uh, a lot of young writers and, and filmmakers and uh, good, good young, young painters. I have a, I have a, a friend, a, a lovely young friend who just finished art, art school in Der Haag. Uh, Sofia Bulgakova is a wonderful young young painter. My um, my wife represents a uh, as she's a producer, a young Ukrainian filmmaker by the name of uh, uh, Anastasia Mamantenko, who is a wonderful young filmmaker. There's just a lot of very talented young people who come out of Odessa, and Odessa still produces very vigorous local art scene. There are still painters living there. Uh, uh, Igor Gusev's fantastic painter. Um, you know, so the, the Odessa, the Odessa Phil- Philharmonic is still a, a very strong institution. There's a competing uh, set of Odessa music festivals during the summer. The Odessa Film Festivals is a wonderful institution, which is now 10 years old, which is very important for the country and even yes. in Eastern Europe, uh, I, I hope it, it, it continues on. There's been some talk of this year being the last one, but I'm hoping that it can, continues on into an 11th year. So Odessa still doesn't produce violinists like it used to in the 19th century <laughs> right? Uh, and the 1920s, but it still produces mobsters and good filmmakers and good poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this is my closing thought about, about your book. How... Would you describe your book as, as a collection of, of reportage for someone who would like to pick it up? Is it a, a book that's about counterculture? Is it a book that it's about that's about aesthetics? In your own words, why would people read it? It's a great question. I endeavored when selecting my work to collect and writing new pieces to put the work together, to stitch it together in having a very thorough thread line of a story about a city and its place in the contemporary nation and the development, the cultural development of that nation. So I see this book as a midpoint between an intro book to Ukraine. This is not the first book that you should pick up if you don't know anything about Ukraine. I'm pivoting towards people who already know things. You don't have to know a lot of things. 
Uh, I don't really write about the war or the Maidan. There's a lot of that already elsewhere. There have been accounts of the war. There have been accounts of the Maidan. Some of them very good. I don't really write about Kiev politics so much. And nor is this an academic volume, even though it's an academic press. This is a collection of pieces with new writings stitched together for the, let's say, experienced Odessophile, for someone who knows something about contemporary Ukraine, for someone who likes uh, interesting stories, for someone who understands uh, uh, the history of Ukraine Gate, for someone who is into statues. There's an entire section on just on statues where yes. I tell the story of contemporary Ukrainian life through six or seven different statues. Statue of Darth Vader, the, the aforementioned Ruzzone, the, um, the, uh, the politics of knocking down statues. I wrote an essay about two and a half thousand words long for Tablet Magazine about two years ago when there was a wave of statues being thrown down in the West about what I learned half a decade ago watching statues come down in in Ukraine. Now, this is not to say that I am in favor of statues of Lenin being kept up. I'm not. There should not be statues of Lenin in a country like Ukraine. But there's a lot to be learned from the process of, of the way they came down, the adverse effects of the way they came down, of the way that that process was slightly botched, and of the way that that process led to more ratcheting up of conflict and political polarization. There was a lot to be learned for the West from Ukraine and its experience of taking statues down. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote a very long essay on, on what we could learn from that. So it's a, it's a book about contemporary Ukraine for, let's say, the non-expert expert, someone who already follows yeah. Ukrainian politics and Eastern European politics and wants to understand more and wants a deep dive into particular local dynamics, which I think I understand fairly well, having spent a lot of time reporting on them and living through them. And... It's not really truly micro history. It's not really cultural history, although it's also that. It's not really only the history of the mob, although, of course, I go into that. It's not only uh, five or six essays on Saakashvili, although that's important. It's not only a book about uh, Ukraine becoming the new Chinatown, although that is, hmm. the, that is the case. But it's a book about the way that culture politics and war intersect to create something important. Mm -hmm. I had a realization after I finished writing the book and I actually sought the PDFs in my hand that this book was about travelers who come to Odessa, lots of remarkable people in the way that everyone winds up being in London once a year or in Venice once a year or for the festival or in New York for whatever reason, or Paris once in their life. Lots of people who would never wind up in Chernigiv or Lugansk or Kharkiv or Mariupol or even Lviv. Lots of people throughout their life will wind up being in Odessa at least once for whatever reason. So there are cameos in this book from, from Svetlana Alekseyevich, from Piotr Pavlensky, from Bernard-Henri Lévy, from Michel Onfray. These are all people in this book, who are international stars or international characters who wound up passing through Odessa on their way to something else. And that's always been the case of Odessa. I think it's really, really interesting. Michel Onfray, Bernard Ingerlivi, Svetlana Alekseyevich, uh, Peter Pavlensky, they would never go to Chernigiv for any reason. But they will come to Odessa 
and that will be part of their life travails and story. And and it, it's yeah. important. The city is still an important crossroads for people's adventures in the world, including Saakashvili, who's also a world historical character, for the better or the worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think of that 2014 event that Tim Snyder put together on Ukraine Thinking Together. It was a seminal event and yeah. there were so many people and, you know, presentations in six languages and just like an incredible sort of moment in May 2014 for, for people to have conversations. And yeah. I was there. Right. <laughs> I, I wanted to go, but I had to return to being a boring academic lad. So <laughs> I would, I, I'd love to see that again. Um, no, yeah, we we should do that again. We should do uh, an anniversary. In fact, if I see Tim, I'll I'll um I'll tell him to to plan another one. That was with the uh, uh with the uh in fact another Ukrainian case of lots of interesting people arriving there. It was before the New Republic was. Yeah, Wiesel, Leon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah. I walked around. I, I, I took Leon Wieseltier uh, uh, around Kiev for a little bit. We walked around with him a little bit. He was there, as was the Facebook gentleman who owned the New Republic at the time. I saw him at the next table drinking. But uh, to return to your question of what my next work is, I'm yeah. putting together a lot of my work on Ukrainian Jewish relations into one book. I'm putting together okay. a book that will be out in the spring about Ukraine and the Jews post-2014, what it means, what happened, what the situation was for the Jews as the heuristic for the creation of a new national cultural identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's exciting. Will that be published by Academica or, as well? or No, that'll be with Ibedim Verlag. Okay. And Columbia University Press. So that'll be uh, co-published by Ibedim Verlag and Columbia. Okay, fantastic. Well, we are fresh out of time here at New Books Network. And uh, we've been speaking, or I have been speaking with um, Vladislav Davidson. His new book is called From Odessa with Love, Political and Literary Essays from Post-Soviet Ukraine, um, with a foreword by Peter Pomerantsev and a preface by Simon Montefiore. This is published by Academica Press in Washington and London, just out 2021. Vlad, thank you so much for your time and for this lively conversation. I'm really grateful and thank you for joining us. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. And I'm your host here at New Books Network, Stephen Siegel. Until next time.